0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kit Poliato, Dean of the Division of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. I would like to thank everyone for joining us for today's Deep Look into the Future of Biology event. Over the past year, this public speaker series has celebrated the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Division of Biological Sciences with a variety of topics and speakers from across UC San Diego who highlight the campus's nationally recognized expertise in biomedical and biological research. Today, we return to COVID-19, a subject that we have discussed several times during this series, starting in the very early days of the pandemic when so many questions rippled across society about the virus and its global spread. While we have learned a great deal about the virus and seen the remarkably speedy development of a vaccine, many questions remain as we head into the winter and the holiday season with the new Omicron variant on the horizon. To help us understand where we've been with COVID-19 and where we're headed, I'm very pleased to welcome three fabulous scientists and leaders in their field who will discuss antiviral immunity, the evolution of infectious diseases, and the mathematical modeling and campus-wide collaboration that has kept UC San Diego one step ahead of the pandemic. First, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Alina Zuniga who will discuss the latest research on proteins known as interferons which show great promise as antiviral therapeutics. Professor Zuniga received her PhD in biochemistry from the National University of Cordoba, Argentina, and conducted postdoctoral research at the Scripps Research Institute here in San Diego, where she held postdoctoral fellowships from the Antorchis Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust. Professor Zuniga has received several honors for her research in antiviral immunity, and in 2020 was elected fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology. Shortly after the pandemic began, Professor Zuniga and her colleagues launched a series of immunology presentations called Global Immunotalks, which bring together top researchers and trainees from around the world in an accessible virtual format to talk about the most recent discoveries in immunology.
3: Please join me in welcoming Professor Alina Zuniga. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much, Kit, for the kind introduction and for inviting me to present at this very prestigious seminar series. Uh, I'd like to start this presentation uh, by reminding everyone that uh, in addition to the great suffering that uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 has brought uh, to all people around the world, it has also brought to the forefront of the general public the importance of understanding antiviral defense because it is only through a deep understanding of how our body protects us against viral infections that we will be able to devise rational therapies to control not only SARS-CoV-2, but many other viral diseases. And so the heroes of today's talk are interferons and plasmocytoidendritic cells or PDCs for short. And I will try to convince you today that these players are cornerstones of antiviral defense. So if you have never heard about interferons, don't worry about it because I will explain to you what are interferons and how they are critical for antiviral defense. I will also share with you how do viruses suppress interferons and why PDCs or plasmocytoid dendritic cells are the most powerful interferon-producing cells or are like interferon factories and what are their limitations. So I will do this uh, through a mix of good and bad news throughout the talk. And so I would like to start with the good news, always nice to start with good news. And is that in uh, the genome of all of us, we encode proteins that are named interferon. And the simplest version is that these proteins, these interferons, exert antiviral and immunostimulatory functions. So in more details, these interferons are encoded in the chromosome nine, in the interferon locus in chromosome nine, where there are several genes that encodes uh, interferons uh, that have slightly different forms. And so all these forms of interferon or flavors or interferon will converge via signaling in one receptor that will then create an antiviral state in the cells in our body and also will induce activation of our immune cells such as T cells or B cells that produce antibodies and protect us against viral infections. So how are interferon produced in our body? So almost any cell in our body is able to produce interferon in response to a viral infection. When the virus infects the cells, it will expose the viral RNA or DNA that then will be sensed by selected receptors in our cells that will trigger a signaling cascade that will lead to the activation of these interferon genes that I mentioned before that are in chromosome nine uh, in our genome and induce the production of the interferon proteins that then will be secreted to the extracellular space. And once in the extracellular ex- space, these proteins will bind to the interferon receptor that is, again, expressed in almost all cells in our body and trigger another signaling cascade that would lead to the activation of another group of genes that are called interferon-stimulated genes or ISGs that encode proteins that will create an antiviral state in these cells where interferon receptor has been engaged. And this antiviral state will prevent or severely restrict the growth of the virus in the infected cells. Interferons can also act in neighboring or long-distant cells that are uninfected and again will bind to their interferon receptor, induce a signaling cascade that will activate these interferon-stimulated genes or ISGs creating an antiviral state that will either prevent the virus to infect this uninfected cell or in the when the cell is infected, severely restrict the growth of the virus inside these cells. And if this is an immune cell, the interferon-stimulated genes will promote the activation of this immune cell. So, SARS-CoV-2 is not an exception as and as many viruses it has been shown that SARS-CoV-2 is susceptible to interferons and esti- interferon stimulated genes that restrict Uh, SARS-CoV-2 growth in infected cells or prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection of uninfected cells. And there are many evidences showing uh, that SARS-CoV-2 is susceptible to interferons. Uh, One of them is the fact that uh, individuals with uh, genetic defects that prevent them to uh, produce a functional interferon receptor uh, uh, as, and as a consequence, they will not be able to bind interferon and they will not be able to create this antiviral state. These individuals develop a life-threatening or more severe COVID-19 disease. So this indicates that interferons are able to protect us from SARS-CoV-2 growth in our cells and the developing of severe uh, COVID-19 disease. So that's good news. We all encode in our genomes these amazing uh, antiviral and immunostimulatory proteins that are called interferons. The bad news is that this doesn't work as good as it could because viruses have evolved means to effectively suppress interferons. And one way they do it is because viruses encode proteins that antagonize interferon production. And so by preventing interferon production, now interferon cannot signal via its receptors cannot stimulate the ISGs and the antiviral state, and now the virus can grow in the infected cells. And SARS-CoV-2, again, is not an exception. It also encodes in its genome that is represented here a number of proteins, that are, which genes are uh, highlighted here in red, and these proteins have been shown that when overexpressed in cells, that they can antagonize or suppress interferon production in the infected cells. And as a consequence, virally infected cells, including SARS-CoV-2 infected cells, will end up producing very little interferon. And so that's bad news because that limits the amount of interferon that our cells in our bodies can produce in response to the presence of the virus. But the good news is that we have evolved a cell type named plasmocytoidendritic cells or PDCs that escape viral suppression and produce large amounts of interferons. So, indeed, PDCs produce 100 to 1,000 times more interferon than other cell types and also produce many more flavors or isoforms of interferons at a given time. And they do this because they have a specialized uh, signaling that we're still learning about, uh, but in part is because they have uh, receptors that are able To detect the presence of viral RNA and DNA, and uh, induce uh, a signaling cascade that will induce the productions of these interferons and uh, in many different flavors, and the secretion of this large amount of interferons. So. Not only that, but PDCs are resistant to most viruses. And by being resistant to viral infection, uh, now the viral antagonistic proteins that normally suppress interferon production in the infected cells will be unable to suppress interferon production in PDCs. Despite not being infected by a virus, the PDCs can capture the viral RNA or DNA from uh, neighboring infected cells and link uh, that to the production of large amounts of interferons that now will be produced in very close proximity to the infected cells. Indeed, it has been shown that PDCs form an interferogenic synapse with the infected cells to produce a large amount of interferon on top of these infected cells, and this will lead to the creation of an antiviral state in the infected cells and restrict the growth of the virus inside the infected cells. Again, SARS-CoV-2 is not an exception. Uh, it has been shown that PDCs recognize SARS-CoV-2 uh, and uh, they do that by sensing the presence of, of SARS-CoV-2 RNA via a receptor called TOLI receptor 7 or TLR7. And the evidence that this is important and protective uh, in the context of COVID-19 is that individuals with a genetic defects that prevent them to, to produce a functional toll-like receptor 7, they develop life-threatening COVID-19 disease. So this indicates, again, that PDCs and TOR-like receptor 7 uh, protects us against a severe COVID-19. And so this is good news that we have these cells that produce a phenomenal amount of interferons and they are less vulnerable to the antagonistic effects of viruses in suppressing type 1 interferon production. The bad news is that this is not as good as it could be uh, because after producing interferon, PDCs become dysfunctional. And so our laboratory, about a year after I joined UCSD, reported uh, that A few days after viral infection, PDCs diminish their capacity to produce interferon. So we did an experiment in which we compare uninfected and infected mice a few days after viral infection And uh, we challenged these mice with viral RNA or DNA and then evaluated the capacity of the PDCs to sense this viral RNA and DNA and produce interferon. So, when we quantify the interferon production in the PDCs from uninfected mice, uh, they were able to produce large amounts of interferons as represented in this bar. Uh, however, the PDCs from mice that were infected with the virus few days earlier, they have lost their function and they produce very little interferon in response to the viral RNA and DNA. And again, COVID-19 uh, is not an exception, and it has been shown more recently that in patients with, uh, uh, with COVID-19, their PDCs uh, produce uh, a lower amounts of interferons, about a five-fold reduction in the proportion of PDCs that produce interferon in response to RNA, viral RNA or DNA. So this indicates that after their initial interferon production, few hours uh, after encountering the virus, PDCs will become dysfunctional and diminish the amount of interferon that will be producing in response to the viral RNA or DNA. And so that's bad news. That means that's a limitation for the PDCs that produce interferon in a in mostly transient manner. The good news is that uh, we have advanced our understanding of the mechanisms underlying this PDC dysfunction. And this has been the work of many laboratories and in particular our laboratory has identified multiple genes that are downregulated in these dysfunctional PDCs. And we have uh, shown recently that uh, by recovering at least one of these genes uh, and restoring its expression, we can restore the interferon production capacity in these otherwise dysfunctional PDCs. And so I hope I have convinced you that interferons and PDCs are cornerstones of antiviral immunity. And that they hold great potential for immunotherapies, uh, not only to fight SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, but also to help us fight many other pathogens that affect mankind and also to help us control tumors because I didn't have time to explain to you, but interferons have also been shown to have anti-tumor properties. So with that, I would like to close. And if you'd like to know more about our research, uh, please follow us in Twitter or go to our website uh, in the Division of Biological Sciences webpage. Thank you. Next, it's my
2: pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Justin Meyer. Professor Meyer is an evolutionary biologist who received his PhD from Michigan State University and was a systems biology departmental fellow at Harvard Medical School, where he was awarded the James S. McDonnell Foundation Fellowship for studying complex systems. Very early in the pandemic, Justin participated in a very popular Deep Look event that described what we knew of the biology and evolution of COVID-19 at that time. And today he'll tell us more about this topic and about the newly emerged Omicron variant. Professor Meyer teaches one of our most acclaimed classes, The Evolution of Infectious Diseases, and last year offered this course online for public audiences. Please join me in welcoming Professor Justin Meyer.
0: Thank you, Dean, for that nice introduction. And as the Dean said, I am an evolutionary biologist who studies the evolution of viruses. I think one of the most annoying parts of this whole pandemic is that advice on how we can handle the pandemic has changed over time. And yes, that that sometimes communication is poor from public health officials, but really the changing advice is a lot to do with the fact that the virus that we're dealing with today is not like the virus that first emerged in Wuhan, China. The virus today has evolved, it's adapted, and it's better able to spread in our populations. So today I wanna answer three questions. How has SARS-CoV-2 evolved? How has SARS-CoV-2's evolution impacted our ability to control the pandemic? And what does SARS-CoV-2 evolution mean for the future of the pandemic? By now, uh, many of us are familiar with this data. Uh, This is the first year of the pandemic in the United States. This is number of new cases per day in the U.S. Uh, And you can see from this data, there are multiple waves. There was a really bad wave around this time last year during the holidays. Uh, But then vaccines came online, people began to get vaccinated, and uh, the case numbers began to drop. And by early summer, it appeared that we had actually had control over this pandemic, that very few cases, new cases were popping up, um, and that maybe we weren't able to get rid of the disease entirely, but that we were able to keep it at a manageable level. But as everybody knows, Going forward in time, we actually had a fourth wave, and that was over the summertime, uh, and now we're in a kind of ambiguous point where we don't know if we're going to get an even worse wave uh, going into the future. And so the question is, if we had relative control over this pandemic before, why is it getting out of control now? And the answer to that is that the virus evolved and that we had the emergence of the delta strain. Okay, so here here are data that you're probably less familiar familiar with looking at. Um, This is data where we're able to actually look underneath the hood of SARS-CoV-2, look down at its genome, and see how it's mutating and how it's evolving over time. And this figure is tracking uh, the emergence and spread of three strains, the original strain from Wuhan, the alpha variant that we had heard about about a year ago, uh, that spread and outcompeted the original strain, but then the delta strain came in and began to outcompete that alpha strain. And so, this graph what it's showing you is that on the x axis we have time, and the time is uh, perfectly overlaid with the time on the top graph. And on the y axis we have strain frequency. So, the higher value here, the more abundant a particular strain is. And so, in the, the beginning of the summer, what this graph shows us is that the Delta strain began to spread um, and it began to dominate. It began to outcompete all other strains. Most of the viruses that are around the world right now are uh, in this, this this group of Delta strains. And so as it began to spread, it also then triggered this massive new fourth wave in the United States and waves like it in other countries. So, this fourth wave is really due to the evolution of the virus, the emergence of this delta strain, and its spread. You can see this just by sort of comparing comparing the dynamics on the lower graph and the upper graph, and how as the green begins to spread, you see um, this this boom in the in the total number of new cases per day. So, what is this delta strain, and why did it lead to a fourth wave, and what does it mean for for this? this pandemic going into the future. The Delta variant uh, is a descendant from the original coronavirus. It has 17 mutations. So the coronavirus has about 30,000 nucleotides that it can mutate, and uh, 17 of those positions have been mutated. So not very many, but we see that those mutations actually have a huge effect on the virus's ability to spread. So this picture here, is just a diagram of the genome of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it shows different features, different um, genes in the genome, and what uh, it's specifically highlighting are where mutations occurred in this uh, Delta variant. And we see that there's many mutations in this spike protein. This is a picture of the spike protein down here. This is the outer membrane of the virus. So these spike proteins hang off the edge of the virus Uh, and play a really big role in the virus's ability to spread. So this protein is what the virus uses to attach to the outer membrane of cells. It initiates the infection process. And so if it can improve its ability to do this through mutation, then it's going to allow the virus to spread faster and faster and faster. Uh, The other thing is that our immune systems recognize this protein and recognize it as a threat um, and they glom on our, parts of our immune system glom onto it and stop it from being able to infect us. And so mutations in this protein, uh, if they're in the sort of right spot, they can actually begin to confer resistance from our immune systems. And so this, these are possibly mutations that could also stop us from being able to fight off infections. And so sure enough, the data shows us that there is some level of resistance. So the Delta variant is more likely to cause a breakthrough infection uh, than than the previous variants. Um, But that's not to say that the vaccines are not effective. They're actually really still very effective. Um, It's just that it's slightly better at, at resisting the vaccine. The reason why the strain caused this fourth wave and is so bad uh, is that it's 2.2 times more transmissible than the original Wuhan variant. So this this thing spreads like crazy. Um, in epidemiological terms, this virus has an R naught of six. The original virus had an R naught of three. And so, what is this R naught? I, I want to go into it a little bit more because this value is often tossed around in the media and in the news uh, with very little explanation. And once you understand how this R-naught works, you can then understand how this virus compares to other viruses like influenza. The R-naught for influenza is a two. So the original Wuhan strain was significantly better able to spread than seasonal influenza. Um, And now this Delta strain is even more uh, transmissible. So what is R-naught? It's the average number of people an infected person spreads the disease to. Okay, so I wrote that sentence and I'm kind of turned around and thinking about what that actually means. So I'm a visual person. I think a lot of other people are too. So let's just, I'm gonna walk through what r naught means in the sense of a population of susceptible people. So that's what all these circles are with S's. Uh, This is a population that hasn't experienced the virus yet. Everybody's susceptible. And we have one infected person that comes into the population. This is the original Wuhan strain with an R-naught of three. And all that number means is that that person is likely to spread that disease to three new people. And then those three new people will spread the disease to nine new people. And those nine new people will spread the disease. And within a matter of weeks, this small population, everybody has been exposed to the virus. And now it's beginning to spread uh, into other populations as well. So that original strain was bad, but the new strain with an R-naught of six has so much more potential to spread that one individual spreads to six new individuals and then bam, within two weeks, that entire small population is infected and it's spreading to many, many more populations. So that's pretty straightforward, but this um, increase of the R-naught actually has a second side effect that's really, um, really deleterious and bad for us. So another term that's often talked about, um, but not explained very well, is this idea of herd immunity. And the evolution of Delta is going to affect whether or not we can achieve this herd immunity. So what is herd immunity? Let's talk about it in reference to that population that we were um, modeling earlier. So now we have a population that has a mixture of sensitive people and people that are resistant. So that's what the R's are. Um, they're resistant, likely because they got the vaccine and they have now natural, they have immunity to the disease. And so let's just play through that exact same scenario that we started out with um, in in the previous section, where we have that infected person spreading the disease to three other people. But now these three people are resistant, and so they don't come down with the with COVID-19. So that infected person then hopefully recovers, maybe has some low level of immunity themselves, they're resistant, and now we have a population that was exposed to the disease, but the disease is no longer there. There are enough roadblocks caused by these resistant people, these immune uh, people that have taken the vaccine, that the virus couldn't spread and it just went away. So let's play through that exact same scenario that we played through before, but this time with Delta, with an R-naught of six. And so while that infected individual spreads the disease to a lot of resistant people that won't get infected, uh, it also spreads the disease to some susceptible people. And so while it's not infecting six new people, it's infecting two new people. And that's enough for the disease to begin to remain um, able to spread in this population. And you know, when, within a few weeks, uh all of the susceptible people have now been exposed to the virus and are spreading it beyond the borders of this population. So this cartoon is based on this mathematical model called an SIR model that uh, there are lots of simulations that you can run online using SIR models that are pretty easy to use. Uh, so if you're interested in understanding disease dynamics and how we make predictions about pandemics, uh, you know, please do search out those, those uh, online tools. Um, but why I'm bringing up the model is that if you run those models and you put in the parameters for Delta, um, it's actually very hard to achieve herd immunity. So it's not just based on this cartoon, but actually on mathematics. Uh, and um, it's going to be very difficult for us to get enough vaccinations and enough resistance uh, for us to actually wipe out this virus. So that is you know, obviously really, really bad news. Um, but what it means is that this virus is going to stick around for a while and that we have to adjust the way that we think about fighting disease, fighting these respiratory infections and modify our behaviors going into the future. You might be sitting there thinking, why did I focus so much on Delta when there's so much news about Omicron, this new variant that has even more mutations than Delta and that people are afraid might be spreading even faster than Delta and might even have other terrible characteristics, like being able to even, or to be better at resisting our immune responses. Uh, So I'm filming this on November 29th, and the news just broke a few days ago about this new strain, and actually we don't have much data on its characteristics. So we will be filming again in a few days, and I'm hoping that the science will reveal some of the characteristics of the disease, and I can give you better information then. So I'm just going to leave it there on this new variant uh, and just talk more generically about what the future holds with the caveat that, you know, we don't know exactly how this thing will evolve and change. And so, you know, the future might be different than, than I expect. So like I said, coronavirus is probably here to stay. It's going to be a new seasonal respiratory disease similar to influenza. The good news is that as more and more people get vaccinated, then the disease will have a harder time spreading. And so it'll behave more like seasonal influenza in the number of new people that get infected per year uh, and not like this really major pandemic that we're going through right now. There should also be less death and less sickness from it because we'll have some level of immunity from vaccines or natural exposure as well. Um, and uh, we might have to get additional corona booster shots. So definitely get your third booster shot um, and then in, going into the future it might be like influenza where we have to update our immunity as this thing mutates and changes over time. The mutation rate for coronavirus is lower than influenza. There's not as much genetic variation uh, in SARS-CoV-2 as there is in seasonal influenza strains. So. I don't expect that we'll need a yearly vaccine for coronavirus, although, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to expect as this thing changes. So just to make it a little bit more personal, how do I envision my life changing? How am I going to adapt my behaviors to the presence of SARS-CoV-2, you know, from one year to the next during, especially during the, the, the winter time? So... For myself and my employees, I run a lab at UCSD, and I am going to make it clear that I'm not going to come into work when I'm sick, and hopefully they won't come to work when they're sick either. Now, you know, sometimes people have these long-running experiments, and you wouldn't want to cancel an experiment just because of cold symptoms. And so I can see a case where somebody would still come into work, but if they do, they have to tell us, and they have to wear a mask. Everybody else in the lab will wear a mask as well. And that they'll socially distance. We'll give them an office that they could isolate um, when they're not working directly in the lab. And for myself, I if I have any cold symptoms going into the future, I'll put on a mask if I have to go to the grocery store or if I have to go to a drugstore, for instance. Mostly distancing works a lot better, uh, but if I have to be out and about, I will put on that mask. It might seem awkward at this point in history uh, and in the, in the United States, um, but I think This is going to be more normal in the future, and I hope so. And it'll help stop SARS-CoV-2 and lots of other respiratory diseases. I hope this gives you an idea of how this disease is changing, why we have to study its evolution, and how we have to adapt to its changes, um, and gives you an idea of what the future may look like. Thank you very much.
2: And now it's my pleasure to introduce Associate Professor of Medicine, Natasha Martin, one of the leaders of the university's successful Return to Learn program. As an infectious disease modeler, Professor Martin has developed mathematical models that have helped the university navigate the pandemic. Her quantitative analyses integrates data on the impacts of changes in behavior, the physical environment, and the virus itself to inform decisions about how to identify and mitigate potential outbreaks to keep our campus safe. Professor Martin received her PhD from Oxford University and her bachelor's degree from Stanford University. And today she will be updating us on the latest on the Return to Learn program, which has been widely recognized among universities for its science-driven approach to campus safety. Please join me in welcoming Professor Natasha Martin. Hello, I'm
1: Natasha Martin. I'm a professor in the School of Medicine and the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. And I am an epidemic modeler. So I build simulation models of disease epidemics. And I am also the co lead of the UC San Diego Return to Learn program, which has informed our COVID prevention strategy over the last 18 months. And so today I'll be talking about some insights that we've learned from modeling and our adaptive approach to address COVID-19 on campus. So the challenge that we had in the beginning of this, way back in March, 2020, was to think about if conditions allowed, how could we resume campus activities in the safest way possible? And this was a challenge for our university, but it was also and continues to be a challenge for society at large. And so our general approach was to take a very scientific um, approach to how we handled information and how we use that information to determine our next steps. And we knew from very early on that we needed to understand that knowledge about the pandemic would evolve and that the definition of an unscientific mind would be to ignore any new data and ignore our changing understanding of the virus in the face of new information. And so what we wanted to do here on campus is to be data-driven, to continually collect as much information as possible, to understand that both the virus might change as well as our understanding of the virus might change over time, and to adapt our approach accordingly. And that really data-driven and adaptive approach allowed us to react quickly and to stay one step ahead of the virus on campus. And so with that general approach, we were able to successfully resume on-campus activities, and we had a great year last year. What we found was that the campus actually remained safer than the community. We had case rates as well as the percentage of all our tests positive that were consistently well below that of the broader county. And we also saw through our contact tracing and case investigations that the vast majority of cases and infections that we saw among our campus populations were likely acquired from the outside community and brought here on campus. We didn't have any evidence last year of classroom or research-related transmission, and so we were able to resume um, operations um, in in a safe way with our return-to-learn strategy. And so this is our return to learn approach. It was a, a designed with three adaptive interdependent pillars that promoted on campus safety. The first pillar was viral detection. That incorporated our asymptomatic and our symptomatic testing approaches, our environmental monitoring, such as our wastewater monitoring program, as well as our molecular sequencing efforts so that we could track variants on campus and how they are spreading. Our middle pillar is our public health intervention pillar that incorporates our case isolation, our contact tracing, our digital exposure notification so that we can prevent transmission on campus once we've identified infections. And our third pillar is our risk mitigation, and these are our masking, distancing, cleaning and sanitation programs, our reconfiguration to airflow um, to to our classrooms, as well as, of course, our vaccination efforts to prevent infection as well as transmission. And again, these three pillars are are interdependent. We can't rely on one only. We needed to have all three of them working together effectively effectively. And our approach with our different interventions in these pillars was to collect as much data across all of them, continually monitor the situation through our daily situational monitoring and COVID monitoring team, and of course, adapt our approach as as new data arose. And one of the exciting quantitative um, aspects of our program was the modeling effort. And so what we did was we developed Um, these simulation models to simulate SARS-CoV-2 transmission among our campus populations to, to help us understand the relative benefits to different adjustments and intervention efforts that we can make on campus. So this is a model that was led by a fantastic new assistant professor here, Ravi Goyal, and he developed a simulation model which simulates transmission among all our campus populations, on and off campus students, faculty, and staff. And infection transmission occurs across various different networks. So over here on the right-hand side, you can see some of them shown. Each of the circles is uh, an individual, such as a student. And one of the potential transmission networks is our residential network. So students can be placed in rooms with one or more roommates. Those rooms can share bathrooms in common areas with um, other rooms in suites. And of course, the multiple suites can make up a residential building. And we have a, a huge heterogeneity in buildings across campus, some very large, some very small. And we can actually, um, you know, simulate the exact different building networks down to the room level based on our residential data. Transmission can also occur in classrooms, and so we can allocate students as well as faculty to classes of different sizes, depending on what uh, level of uh, uh, their upper division or lower division. Um, And again, we can simulate these classroom sizes and um, networks based on actual class registration data as well as the residential and the classroom networks, we also simulate a sort of random campus interaction network. These are interactions that happen, social interactions as people are wandering around campus or work-related interactions between our faculty and staff. And so we have these different networks where transmission can occur, And the simulation model also incorporates the natural history of infection. So we're able to uh, incorporate information in terms of, for example, asymptomatic periods where people may not be symptomatic but can transmit infection to others. And so using these simulation models, we can look at the impact of different um, asymptomatic and symptomatic testing approaches, and we can also simulate isolation, contact tracing and quarantine, as well as masking and social distancing. So we use these simulation models uh, for a lot of different areas, trying to understand the relative benefits of different asymptomatic testing frequencies, different density adjustments that we can make, for example, singles or doubles housing for our residential populations, different approaches to classroom instruction, fully in-person or hybrid instruction, class size CAPS. We could also look at the impact of different introductions of infections from the outside campus and the impact of public health intervention efforts on campus, as well as masking and social distancing. And here, this slide shows you a visualization of the model, each of these circles being an imported infection onto campus and the size of the circle representing a number of a uh, number of clustered infections linked to that initial infection. So we can see that in this simulation, most infections don't result in any clusters, but we can see how large those clusters grow with different intervention strategies. We can also look at the impact on our isolation housing need um, and cumulative infections among our different populations. And so, using this model, we saw that reducing density in our classrooms, reducing density within our housing could reduce the risk of these large outbreaks, as well as overlaying an asymptomatic testing program to diagnose individuals early and prevent transmission to others. And so, we started last fall in September 2020 with an asymptomatic testing program mandating testing among our populations every two weeks. But again, we were continually collecting data. And what we saw over fall break last year was that we had increasing case rates, both among our uh, populations that were returning to campus after fall break, as well as in the broader community. And so in response to that, we switched to weekly asymptomatic testing. We were able to do that through the provision of testing through our vending machines, which made it really easy for anyone to get a test through a vending machine, self-swab their own nose, drop it into the um, collection box. Those tests were uh, transported to the lab, and students, faculty, and staff could get their results within 24 hours on their cell phone. As well as our asymptomatic testing program, we also expanded our wastewater monitoring program in December of last year um, with the hopes that it would provide us an early signal that there may be um, undiagnosed infections in one of our buildings on campus. And in fact, our our wastewater monitoring program has been extremely successful. What we found is that we can detect SARS-CoV-2 virus in the wastewater using our standard PCR methods, and it's incredibly sensitive. So of the individuals that we diagnosed with infection that were resident in our campus housing, 85% of the time we were able to detect a signal in the wastewater in advance or the same day that we detected that infection through standard um, symptomatic or asymptomatic testing. We've also found that the wastewater monitoring program is effective in in getting people to test if we see a positive signal, so that wastewater notification saying that we see a positive signal in a building and we encourage residents, people living and working in those buildings to get tested, actually doubled testing rates among those populations. And so over the course of the last year, we've scaled up from six samplers to currently we have 131 samplers which are collecting wastewater from over 340 buildings on campus every day. This information is shown on our public daily dashboard where individuals can go and see um, for the past seven days, whether a particular building that they were living or working in was positive. Um, and we also issue direct notifications through email and through signs if we see a persistent signal in a building, encouraging people to get tested regardless of their vaccination status if we see a positive signal. And so, of course, we've had a changing landscape in 2021. We've had um, the expansion of vaccination. We've had new variants of concern, in particular, um, the Delta and the, and other variants. And of course, now we're in a situation thinking about boosters um, to increase um, boosti- boosting and vaccination protection in a population. But despite this changing landscape, we have maintained a consistent approach on campus, and that is data-driven, iterative, and adaptive. And so for fall 2021, what we've done is we have taken the data that we've collected over the last year, both in terms of how the virus has changed as well as the situation on campus. And we've then gone back and we've iterated on the model and we've added of several key additions highlighted at the bottom of this slide. So we've now calibrated our model to the data that we've collected over the last year, um, helping us understand, as I mentioned before, that the vast majority of infections that we see on campus are acquired from the outside community and brought into campus. Um, And we've used information in terms of where we have seen potential transmission events to calibrate the the likelihood of transmission across our different networks. We've also changed the model to incorporate what we know about Delta viral kinetics and how that changes with vaccination. And we've also overlaid our waste monitoring program and the impact that that's had, both in terms of its ability to detect cases as well as um, uh, results in in testing among the population to, to enable early detection of infected individuals. And so on the right-hand side here, for example, one of the things we can look at is the impact of our wastewater monitoring program and the modeling that we're showing really underscoring the importance of our wastewater monitoring in addition to our asymptomatic and symptomatic testing at preventing transmissions on campus. And so finally, I'd just like to reiterate that, you know, across the last 18 months, we have tried our best to take a really scientific, data-driven and adaptive approach. We are continually and daily, you know, um, taking in the new data, assessing the situation, and adapting our policies and strategies as we go. And I think that this this data-driven scientific approach has enabled us to resume on-campus activities safely and enabled us to live alongside the virus and do what we do best on campus, which is research, teaching, and service in the community. And we'll continue to do this um, through the course of 2022 um, to continue to understand how we can start living um, alongside the virus and, and minimize the disruption that we have to our campus communities and to the community at large. And finally, just to acknowledge the many people that have been involved in the Return
2: to Learn initiative over the course of the last year. Thank you. Thank you so much to each of our speakers for those really amazing talks. I wanted to um, offer each of you the chance to tell us a little bit of something about how the Omicron variant has impacted the presentation that you might have given, that you gave. And um, maybe I'll start with Professor Zuniga. how, do, how does the system you describe, how is it impacted by viral variants such as Omicron?
3: Thank you, thank you so much, Kit. Um, so uh, we still don't know uh, what we know are the mutations that Omicron has, and there are some mutations that are localized to non-structural genes, uh, including genes that encode proteins that are known to antagonize uh, interferon production. And so uh, we still don't know how much these mutations would affect the uh, a potential or power of this protein suppressing interferon. We will have to wait until this is tested experimentally, but there is a possibility. Fabulous.
2: Thank you. Professor Meyer.
0: Yeah, thank you, Kit. It's hard to say what is going to happen with Omicron and how it'll change the disease dynamics that I talked about. Um, Certainly, this variant has many, many more mutations, and we talked a lot about mutations in the spike protein, and uh, there's uh, tons and tons of mutations in the spike protein, and they appear to be adaptive mutations, and so they are going to either change its ability to uh, spread from one person to the next, just like Delta, or they could be mutations that are more focused on avoiding uh, our immune systems. And so uh, we're not sure exactly what they do. Um, They definitely are changing the behavior of this virus. The virus is spreading uh, very rapidly in South Africa, and now it's popping up in lots of different countries. So this is a different variant, uh, and we have to keep monitoring it. And luckily there are lots of labs that are studying exactly how these mutations work, what they're changing in the variant. And then hopefully we can, Take that information and and put it into models like Natasha talked about um, and make better predictions for how we have to adjust our lives.
2: Fabulous. Thank you so much, Professor Martin
1: thanks. Um, you know, at a campus level, we will be using the same approach that I have presented here today, a really data driven uh, approach, understanding, as I said, we knew from the beginning that both the virus would change as well as our understanding about the virus would change over time. And so we will continue to to collect as much data as we possibly can, um, you know improve our understanding of the situation and adapt our approach if needed. But I think the good thing is, is that we have been very successful in developing over the last 18 months, a very strong and robust infrastructure for viral surveillance, public health intervention, and risk mitigation on campus. So one particular example that I mentioned is, we have a very robust asymptomatic and symptomatic testing program, and we have our wastewater monitoring program. Within both of those programs, we, um, Rob Knight, Louise Laurent, and others, have developed uh, molecular sequencing technologies so that we can monitor the presence of variants, um, both in the wastewater as well as the na- nasal swabs. Um, so what we found in that, um, those analyses is that actually the, the wastewater has provided us with an early signal, sometimes weeks ahead, um, that there is a variant of concern that has arrived on campus compared to one we've detected in the nasal swabs so we'll we'll be relying on the robust infrastructure that we've built in terms of viral detection to um, to detect when omicron arrives on campus and of course you know integrating the data and the knowledge that that emerges in terms of the impact of that variant on transmissibility vaccine um, immune evasion and, and um, severity um, but i would say generally that the campus is really well situated to meet the challenge of Omicron, if it is indeed as concerning as as there are discussions about. We have highly vaccinated students, faculty, and staff, over 95% vaccinated. We have the robust sequencing and testing program dimension, and a really engaged student body who have participated incredibly well in our masking initiatives and our other public health initiatives. and so we'll really just be enhancing our surveillance, trying to encourage everybody to get vaccinated if they're not vaccinated or boosted if they are vaccinated. And there is the current, um, the Chancellor's Challenge has challenged us to uh, boost 10,000 students by January 1st, 2022. So we're really working on those efforts to make sure that
2: we you know, are ready for whatever comes our way. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. And then there, the next question is, are there data to show that outdoor tents are safer than indoor classrooms that have yeah. good ventilation? It's a really interesting question. I mean, of course, just in general, we,
1: we do know that outdoor spaces are, are safer than than indoor spaces. But in terms of on campus, you know, fortunately, we have not seen any evidence of classroom related transmission at all, either indoor or outdoor. So we can't really make that um, direct comparison. Um, and so, you know, I think that in, in general, that's, it's, quite, uh, it's, it's quite good news in terms of uh, ensuring that our classrooms remain safe spaces for the students. And where we have seen transmission events, it tends to be among
2: roommates or, you know, that are sharing bedrooms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. And if you had to speculate, would that be because the campus has great airflow in all of our rooms or because students are masking very well? Uh, I think, I think both. it's both. I think it's both. I mean, definitely there have been huge efforts to
1: improve ventilation, which undoubtedly reduces the risk of transmission, but masking as well, obviously, is an important
2: contributor. Fabulous. It's great. Thank you. Then there's a question about wastewater testing and whether this could be used in other areas in San Diego for early detection, and perhaps also be extended for other viruses.
1: Yeah, this really interesting question. So, um, Rob Knight's team is Professor Rob Knight's team is is also uh, collaborating on a number of other projects that collect, collect wastewater from other areas in San Diego. So. Um, they collect wastewater from the Point Loma outflow and have been able to show that that um, collection point is, uh, shows kind of can show surges of infections in, earlier than they're detected kind of clinically, which is useful. But also, Professor Rebecca Fielding Miller, who's in the School of Public Health, leads a program called SASI, where they are testing the wastewater in schools and nurseries across. Um, across San Diego and I think those are really interesting applications to wastewater monitoring for for um, COVID-19 particularly in areas where access to testing might be low or there might be reluctance to access testing and so wastewater monitoring can provide you know sort of a Cooled passive monitoring system to give schools, for example, an indication that there may be an infection or an outbreak in their schools and to be able to issue notification to their community so that they can test and take other protective measures. Um, and then, as I mentioned, in addition to the just the signal that you get from the wastewater in terms of presence of a potential infected individual. We the their team has also looked at the molecular sequencing and we can also um, again get an early indication of variants of concern whether they've arrived in San Diego through the wastewater. We've seen that. Um, and in terms of the question about whether it can be used for other infections, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it for example, I think the the question was talking about hepatitis. So we had a very large hepatitis A outbreak primarily among homeless and um, substance using individuals a few years ago. And uh, there are some studies that have shown that you can detect hepatitis A in the wastewater. Um, So it could be again a a potential, I agree it could be a potential technology that could be used to to track other infectious diseases
2: um, across the community. Great, thank you. And now we have two related questions about the evolution of the virus for Professor Meyer. Um, Do you expect the virus to evolve to become less infectious or more infectious? What do you see when you look in the future?
0: I think um, what a lot of the questions are about lately are about whether or not this virus will evolve to be less virulent. So once it gets into your body, um, how bad is it going to be for us? Um, and what we've seen with uh, diseases like HIV that emerge, spread around the world, um, and that we've been living with for now decades, um, is that they have that HIV has evolved to be um, less virulent; that it's it's not as harmful. Obviously, it's still very harmful, um, but not as bad as the original strains that were spreading. And so, this leads to the question of what's happening with SARS-CoV-2. I mentioned that. This is going to become more of an endemic disease. So we're going to have to deal with this probably one year or many years into the future. And uh, so how will it change? Will it sort of evolve in a way that it's more benign and it'll coexist with us? Um, Or will it keep evolving to be worse and worse and worse? Um, And uh, I don't have the answer for Omicron. Uh, It really relates to what those spike protein mutations are doing for the virus. So if they're allowing it to transmit faster and faster um, between people, then that selection to transmit uh, between people often has a correlated effect that the virus becomes more deadly as well. Uh, So it's actually bad for the virus to be deadly because if it's deadly, it kills off its host. So that's bad. It's a trade-off. Um, but as it it moves to be more and more transmissible, it it often becomes more deadly. You can understand this at a mechanistic level. One of the ways a virus becomes um, more transmissible is that it just creates more viral particles. And so it's more likely to spread from one person to the next person, but also within the body, it's going to spread to more cells and cause more damage and be harder to cope with. Um, And so if those spike protein mutations Are about transmissibility then i think it's going to become it's probably even worse than than say delta Uh, but if it is uh, to avoid our immune systems this is where it gets kind of tricky because the the virus itself these mutations might be selected for just to look different so that it they basically allow the virus to hide from the immune system and so they don't necessarily have to improve transmission or in effect, it's virulence, Um, but obviously if our immune systems can't combat the virus as well, then, you know, that that also uh, leads to worse outcomes. So it's really blurred right now what what we can expect. Um, I think these early reports and discussions are, uh, they're they're getting ahead of themselves. Um, Hopefully it it is possible for diseases to become more benign, but it's not a rule. Um, And so far, you know, with Delta, that thing transmits much faster and probably has a slight increase of virulence as well. So it's hard to say right now. Thank you very much.
2: I'll ask Professor Zuniga another looking into the future kind of a question. Um, What will it take to make interferons into drugs that can help us combat these viruses if indeed they are evading the immune system? Or are there already therapies out there? Yeah.
3: Yeah, so uh one one uh, way the uh and and there are therapies that have been implemented for example for C that worked, uh is uh delivering uh recombinant interferons and and as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago uh there has been uh clinical trials for cov 2 with uh interferon in a nebulized form and also uh it, it has uh, a, a uh, given uh, promising results, especially when uh, they delivered early in infection. Um, I think that uh, the limitation with uh, uh, using as a treatment uh, the recombinant interferon is that typically uh, this uses one flavor of the interferon. Um, the other uh, potential approach that still hasn't been exploited uh, it would be to target the interferon factory, right? Uh, to, to target these cells, the plasmocytoid and dendritic cells that are uh, able to produce large amounts of interference with many different flavors and in very close proximity to the infected cells. And uh, I think there are uh, some uh, a, a ways to do that and that they are uh, being tested with um, a, a, a ligands for these uh, toll-like receptor seven, for example. And uh, you know, we will be seeing more in the future, hopefully.
2: Ah, uh, That's great. Thank you so much. I really look forward to seeing how that develops. It's very exciting. So I'd like to wrap this up with a question for each of the panelists about recommendations for how we can safely approach the holidays. What should we be doing this holiday season with Omicron in California, we now know, and perhaps spreading? So I'll just open it up for your recommendations.
0: So um, this is actually pretty timely. I was thinking about this a lot this morning from my lab and sent them an email about recommendations that that uh, I have for them. Um, so it's this, it's the normal ones, get boosted. Uh, some people uh, may think it maybe is too late to get boosted for Christmas uh, or the other holidays, New Year's and so forth. Um, uh, it is not too late. Uh, the boosters effect actually seems to kick in faster than the original two doses. So this third dose is just kind of reminding your immune system of what it knew already. Um, and so it kicks in within just a couple di- a couple days. Uh, so it's not too late to get boosted. Um, definitely wear masks, wear good masks, wear the KN95s, the N95s, so forth. Be religious about it, forget about social pressure, just wear your masks. Um, but also for my students and myself, when we come back from traveling, to see our families and so forth, uh, if they have work that they can do at home, I think we should all quarantine at home for a week uh, before coming into the lab and, you know, potentially sharing, uh, you know, this this variant uh, with each other. Um, so that might be a little bit over the top and unnecessary, but I think if if we have work that we can do at home, um, it's a good time to to do that.
2: That's great. Thank you. That was,
1: that was great. The only thing that I would add is, you know, if you are not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. The vast majority of people who are in the hospital and who are dying right now are people who are unvaccinated. So especially if there is increased risk of transmission, then, you know, that the, the best protection is vaccination. Um, and if you are already vaccinated and boosted, also just a, um, a recommendation to get your flu vaccine if you haven't already, so that that can also potentially reduce the Burden on our
3: hospital
2: and public health infrastructure. Perfect. Thank you so much.
3: I would like to add uh, that uh, for gathering, if you're planning to gather the colleagues, which probably everyone is planning to uh, try to keep it a small and uh, um, then large public gathers where you don't know if people are vaccinated. And even if you, you're a small gathering, you, you are gathering with people that you know are not vaccinated, maybe it makes sense to ask uh, these uh, friends or family uh, relatives that uh, for whatever reason, they are still not vaccinated, uh, to get a test uh, maybe a few days uh, before you gather with them, and then uh, obviously encourage them to get vaccinated as well.
2: Perfect. Those are great recommendations. Thank you all. Many thanks to each of you for giving such a really engaging talks today. I learned something. I'm sure our audience learned something. And thanks to the audience for joining us here this afternoon to learn about COVID 19 from these three leading experts in the area. So have a wonderful rest of your day.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.